Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. So I got a postcard in the mail uh, from the census survey. Uh-huh. Did you fill and it out? And I filled it. Yeah, I, I filled it out. Um, but it got me thinking, how how do I know what is happening with this data that's being collected? Like, it's always great to collect good data. Um, but in this case, I'm in that data set. So um, are there any protections that are being put in place for census data? Really interesting question. So glad you asked. Total coincidence, because this was what I wanted to talk about anyway. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk about differential privacy today, and we'll use the census as an example, but it's a topic that's generally interesting to anybody who works with data around people, which tends to be a lot of data if you look under the covers. You are listening to Linear Digressions. <laughs> So we'll focus on the example of the census here today because this is one of the like biggest and most expensive and most famous data sets on people that exists. Uh, but the topic of differential privacy is something that's general to really any data set that you have. But the problem that they have in the census is they're collecting this very granular and detailed data on everyone in America, uh, ostensibly, although I think I think we all know that that's probably not totally realistic, but as many people as, as possible. Uh, but a lot of people are understandably a little bit nervous about, well, like, how is my data going to be used? And what what protections are there that my individual level, like personal data, won't be disclosed to anyone based on the downstream uses of this data set? And I guess they're kind of two things in that one is how do we know that the government won't use this data to say uh, target people who are undocumented but then the other piece of it is if the data set is out there for researchers to use how do i know that the researchers won't be able to kind of pull it apart and find to be in that data set and the second one is what we're talking about today yeah we're going to focus on the second use case and it's an important one and i think it you know, the meaning of the word research in this context, is it's actually pretty broad. Um, so it can refer to folks like academic researchers who are getting versions of this data set to write sociology or political science papers. But it also refers to the way that many parts of the government just run and operate. So when things like congressional districts are being drawn, they're being drawn on the basis of census results. When state and local governments are asking for resources from the federal government, they're doing so on the on the basis of the number of people who live in their jurisdiction. Uh, in some cases, if you uh, have a certain makeup in terms of socioeconomic status or race or something like that, then that can sometimes be the basis of additional funds that you can request for like programs, these kinds of things. So it's not just like, oh, we're kind of interested in this in an academic sense, but it's actually uh, pretty important for the functioning of many of these pieces. And so there's different levels of data disclosure that are allowed for different types of research. Uh, so obviously, if you're making something externally available to an academic researcher who's going to publish on the basis of that data, there might be a different set of expectations versus internal usage for bookkeeping and accounting for the operations of the government. But in general, uh, the question that you might have, especially for that case where you're 
pieces of the data set with your individual information of them, if those are being made publicly available, you as a person in that data set might be wondering what someone who is smart and motivated and has access to that data set could discover about you as an individual. And that's where differential privacy comes in. And that seems that that might seem a little far fetched, but we've had a number of episodes where we've gone into uh, details of how what seem like fairly anonymized data sets, even intentionally anonymized data sets, can be, you can kind of back out uh, individual details, especially when you combine it with another source. Uh, so although it may seem far-fetched, it actually is feasible and does happen. Yeah, so there's like a fun story about this. That's called a uh, a record linkage attack. And so that's when the data set that you release is not does not itself have any personally identifying information, but there's a way that you could link it with perhaps some other data set. Maybe it's a data set that doesn't even exist yet, but that when you join them together, you can identify individuals. Fun story about this that I read as I was doing some research. Um, there's a woman who is if I'm not mistaken, a professor at Harvard now. She's very distinguished um, in the field of this sort of special topics in data science, like ethics, privacy, inequality of, of algorithms when they're being applied to like minority groups, these kinds of things. Um, her name is Latanya Sweeney. When she was a graduate student at MIT, if I recall correctly, so this was in Massachusetts, there was a data set that was released of medical records of a whole bunch of people who were, I think, like state employees, or there was, there was some kind of public public database of medical records that um, the governor said, look, we have taken off everybody's names. We've taken off any publicly identifying information. So if you are an individual who's in this data set, like, don't worry, nobody's going to be able to know that it's you. Don't worry about it. Uh, so as a graduate student, she... Uh, figured out how to do a record linkage operation. So she figured out how to join this publicly de-identified medical records database to another database that had PII attached and was able... Personally identifiable information. <laughs> yes, yeah, thank I... you. And was able through that information to find the governor in the medical records database. Whoa. Oh, um, that's funny. I know. That's sort of fun. Um, so really... Uh, demonstrating to to him in a very direct way that he was yeah. mistaken. Uh, this was in, I think, some of the earlier days of differential privacy when people were just starting to think about, yeah, how having your, your data out uh, in public view, even if you thought it was de-identified, was not entirely secure. So Yeah, wow. Um, yeah, so it's pretty cool. So anyway, the place where we are now as a society or something, academic community, let's say, is uh, folks have been thinking about this problem for, for a while now, um, because obviously it's, uh, it's a problem that's really important to a lot of folks who have data being collected about them, which is basically everyone. And tech companies and uh, the Census Bureau, which we're going to focus on today, have uh, different ways of dealing with it. And one of the methods is differential privacy. That's going to be the main focus here today. So differential privacy is kind of interesting. The rough idea is that you add noise to the data set in such a way that uh, if you do a particular calculation on that data set, you'll get the same answer regardless of whether a given individual is in the data set or not. So here's a simple example. 
Let's suppose that you have a data set and you want to run a query on it that says, what is the average salary of people in this data set? And you have individual level salary information for all of them or um, net worth. Let's use net worth. What's the net worth of all the people in this data set? And there's a hundred people in the data set. And let's suppose that there's two different versions of the data set and I give them both to you. And one of those versions has Bill Gates in the data set and one of them doesn't. So the average salary in one of the data sets is going to be, let's say it has a hundred people in it. It's going to be something like a billion dollars. Yeah. Uh, and then the other one without Bill Gates in it will have an average net worth of, I don't know, whatever the, the net worth is for like literally any other group of people. <laughs> You know, let's say you took a hundred people who, yeah, who live in my building and it was like in the tens of thousands of dollars or like the hundreds of thousands of dollars, perhaps, uh, depending on like the, the, the group that you have or anyway, you get the idea. Yeah. Uh, so the idea of differential privacy is that then let's add a certain amount of noise to that output so that what you'll get instead is a range plus minus some uncertainty and, and that uncertainty you know, can change when you when you query the data set multiple times and things like this. So you, you never quite know exactly if you're getting the precisely correct answer, and you're probably usually not. But it does mean that whether... Now, maybe Bill Gates would be pretty hard to hide in a data set like this, right. but um, in many cases, a little bit of fuzzing can obscure whether any particular person is in there or not. So I guess if you have a population of, I mean, I guess even 7 billion, uh, Bill Gates is still hard to hide. Uh, but if you have a population of 100, then probably your fuzziness factor would be tremendously large because you need to be able to hide this this uh, crazy outlier uh, in such a way where someone who's querying the data doesn't know if that person is there. And probably the fuzzing would have to be so large as to render that data almost useless uh but maybe in a a more moderate example you'd be able to get away with less fuzzing yeah and this is one of the things that's tricky about differential privacy is that well here first of all let me introduce the notion of a what's usually called a privacy budget which is an idea of how much tolerance you have for potentially re-identifying someone versus how much inaccuracy you're willing to put up with. The idea being that there's yeah. like a trade-off between the two. You can have something that's very differentially private, that there's very high degree of, of certainty or of security that an individual not will not be re-identified. But as you say, that usually brings along with it a higher amount of fuzzing that you have to do to the data. And so there's a greater uncertainty and or loss of accuracy uh, when you go to do statistical analysis on that data set. Right. Okay. That, yeah, that was actually my next question is like by fuzzing or by introducing noise, you're making the data set less accurate. And so I, I like the idea of, uh, of calling it a budget, figuring out what is your tolerance for, uh, I guess, usefulness versus uselessness of the data is the other side of the coin of uh, very private versus not particularly private. Yeah, and this is something that I think is so interesting in the census use case because with the census, what they are doing is they want to make a version of the data set available for research, but they want it to be differentially private. 
And so one of the things that they have spent a lot of time studying in the last year or so within the Census Bureau is what should that budget be? And trying to think of all the different ways that researchers, as far as they can anticipate, will want to slice and dice the data such that, you know, maybe there's a one calculation that carried out on a certain level is differentially private for a certain privacy budget. But then if a researcher were to do the same analysis, say on a on a much more granular level, that might not be differentially private. So it, what this means is that uh, differential privacy is kind of like a relationship between an input data set and output statistic and any processing that you do in the middle. And so trying to think through like all of the permutations there is a huge part of the exercise. And it starts to get actually quite, quite interesting and quite complex to try to understand how to do this uh, as on the whole. Okay, the the term makes a little bit more sense now. Differential privacy is the, I, I guess, the term implies that we're looking at the relationship between your original unfuzzed data set and your new data set that you might be providing to people. And actually, I have a follow-up question. Uh, if I'm a researcher, does this mean that once this data set comes out, I will literally download a, a humongous file full of numbers? Or is this a system that I'm making queries against? Mm, that's a really good question. And I don't know how they're going to implement it. I think that there are versions of both. For this particular use case, I'm not sure. And I could imagine that there might be a few different a few different versions that they might have depending on who you are and what it is you want to do with it. Mm. Yeah, the other the other interesting thing about that is if you're providing someone with an actual like a here's a zip file or here here's a tremendously huge CSV or something, um, go ahead and download it. Well, once you put once you publish it, you can't ever unpublish it because even if you do unpublish it, someone may have downloaded it, backed it up, put it somewhere. Maybe archive.org has it. Um, but if you're running a service and the only thing that someone hitting your service gets is their results back, then you could always increase the anonymization of the data later on if there's some use case you realize that you missed or something. But of course, the downside of that is it costs money to run a service. Yes, I will agree with that. I think it is for sure easier to think about ways that you can meter access to a data set if you are controlling the data set itself and users can only access it through a service because what you can do in that case is you can run the underlying query and then fuzz the result uh, and compare it to maybe all the other queries that have been run on that system before to make sure that you're not giving them a piece of incremental information that would allow any re-identification. I think that's one of the other things I'll just add as an aside about privacy budgets is that you can eat away at them query by query. Um, and so the more queries you allow yourself to run on a data set, the larger the chance of being able to re-identify someone, no matter what the privacy budget is. That almost feels uh, similar in concept to the idea of overfitting, where the more you hammer at it, the closer you get to molding exactly to what the actual underlying data set is. But please, please like shoot that idea down if it makes no sense. Given no, I, that I, I don't know what I'm talking about. No, I think of it. I think of it slightly differently. I think of it as like yeah. imagine that you're trying to reconstruct like a very, very, very large object. <laughs> that has some 
very uh, complicated like surface and structure and all this kind of thing. And so you can only see little pieces of it at any given point. Like maybe you can only take snapshots from three feet away. And so each of those snapshots only has a tiny glance at it. But if you're allowed to take enough snapshots and you can tile them together, then you can like reconstruct the underlying object. That's basically the idea here. Right. Got it. Yeah. But I think one of the, one of the things that's kind of funny and that's going to be a little bit interesting to see how the research community deals with this. So the idea of doing downstream analysis on this data is now a very interesting one because imagine you're one of the researchers who's using a data set of, I don't know, whatever census data, and you're going to correlate it with election outcomes. That sounds like something that a that a professor would do somewhere, right? Um, now your underlying data, you know, maybe you find some trend in the data. Is that trend strong enough that you can say with confidence it would survive if the data set were tweaked within the bounds of what the the fuzziness of the differential privacy introduces? You mm. might find if you drill down into a particular enough niche of the data set that there's like negative 2.7 people who have a certain set of attributes and live in a particular area because the actual number is like four but they had to fuzz it you know plus minus nine and then uh you know that takes them into negatives and also who's to guarantee that it's an integer and so maybe it's a it's a fraction of a person or maybe you say what's the number of people under 50 and the number of people over 50 who live in this area and they those two numbers added together do not add up to the total number of people who live in that area. It starts to be, become really, really difficult to do differential privacy uh, that also gives you internally consistent results in all the different ways that you would slice and dice it. So there's just this like fuzziness that gets all over everything in this way that I think academics are going to really love. It's going to be... They're going to think it's really super fun. <laughs> yeah, this seems pretty grumpy making if I'm a researcher. Because if I'm if I'm a non-malicious researcher, then probably my perspective is, okay, maybe I get why you have to do this, but God, I wish you could just trust me because I'm not malicious. But of course, you can't do that because you don't know who is and who isn't malicious. Yeah, it's just, it's kind of impossible to guarantee that even if you're doing all the best things now that no one in the future would ever uh, be able to do anything bad with the data set, which is kind of what differential privacy is designed to, to assure in the strongest cases is not only can you not do anything with this data set now, but no one with any future data set would be able to do anything with it either, which is a pretty, pretty strong guarantee when you start to think about it. Yeah. Right. Wow. So, yeah, I, the, the field of social science, you know, the folks who use this data set, they, the Census Bureau announced a while ago that differential privacy is going to be part of their release strategy. So the field has had some time to start doing some of this research and trying to figure out how the analytics techniques need to adapt to the differentially private data set. Um, and I think some of those studies are also informing the Census Bureau's strategy about how they're actually going to implement it. There are a couple of really good articles that um, we will link to in, on LinearDigressions.com where uh, folks from various sides of this conversation are giving some readouts of that work. So yeah, it's kind of a big, it's kind of a big, interesting experiment though. Uh, there hasn't ever been a data set that's been 
collected and then released quite like this. So uh, it'll be really interesting to see how it goes. So you do not need to be worried that your individual level file will be just sitting there in the census data set for everyone to see. So if you are interested in making sure that government and social services uh, are being allocated properly, uh, fill out your census. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. That's pretty cool. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.